let's get right into it. Um, okay. Cause it's been too long since we've not just talked and well, no, we did have that nice chat the other day. That was good stuff. That was very um, good. But, it's been um, too long since we were on air, Greg. I need on to, air and discussing discussing our favorite topic. It's I need to be on the stage. I need to be where the people are, Greg. You want to see you want to see him dancing? I wish I knew that song better so I could erupt into musical theater. <laughs> These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart. And one we invite you to take with us. Through, through the, the wind. wind door. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to your friends Greg and Toby, who we haven't... This is our first recording of the new year, and it's kind of fascinating that, uh, you know, considering the metaphor of January being the dead of winter and all that sort of thing, you know, it's the start of a new year, but nobody really likes January. January is a very quiet, very cold month and so therefore we're not having any kind of overlap at all with our current subject matter oh right this is where things start to go really bad for our group greg i'm rusty why did we start up with this one again (laughs) why did we start here well but that's the problem is that remember things already started to go bad when the big confrontation with seth happens and we lose frau and Steam Heart is not necessarily damaged beyond repair, but like it's not really going anywhere all that much. So like their mm. craft is damaged, their team is wounded. That's where we started from. And unfortunately, mm. as we're about to get into, the title of part four is very relevant to uh, how we mean to continue into the final part of our story. Hmm. You and I had some confusion at first or as to whether part four was titled The Turning Point or The Tipping Point. It's amusing that we never bothered to check as we were having these original conversations. Oh, that would be cheating, Greg. Yeah, well, we're, it, it, it implies we weren't properly prepared because, like, this is stuff that we'd already written down and I could have easily gone back and, like, looked that up prior to us recording on the subject, but it's fine. It's no problem. Um, We are nothing if not honest with all of our shortcomings. Yes, we're very, we're very uh, transparent in that regard. Mm. Um, To be clear, part four is, as you would know, if you were following along with us, or even if you, you, dear listener, double checked, it is called The Turning Point which honestly is the better choice of the two of them. It's more of a neutral term, which Mm. you prefer when you're trying not to give anything away. Like, Mm. whenever you're beginning a story, before you even read page one of the text of the story, you tend to have the table of contents, which Mm. will show you all of the titles of 
the chapters and individual parts if you divide it up that way. Mm. And it just works better for like to imply that something is happening, but not what, so that you can experience it in a proper linear fashion without having anything spoiled along the way. And I know that there's a, a differing opinion going on there in terms of, well, really good, really well-told stories can't be spoiled because if it's written properly, then you will have the same experience every time. But I will admit that there's nothing quite like going into a new piece of media for the first time and experiencing it with limited knowledge of what's about to proceed, yeah. like having that genuine emotional reaction to each individual part of it. You can always re-enjoy something on a second watch through. And if everything is cohesive, if it all works together, then you have a new, different, but equally strong feeling about re-experiencing the story. Like, cause this is the, like the the argument that tends to happen in terms of modern day trailers. How do you tease enough of the story to get people interested without giving away major plot beats, major thematic stuff that will make it feel like, well, that's just the entire movie right there. What's the point of watching it? You've given everything mm. away in the trailer. There's always the argument of whether or not you can actually still enjoy it or not. That's... To me, that's neither here nor there. I think it mm -hmm. should be pretty cut and dry that everyone deserves the right to go in mm -hmm. without being told everything. So mm -hmm. I think it's generally proper etiquette is to veer away from saying things that give the game away. Like It would be bad form if we just read through the chapters of Steamheart and saw in the preceding chapter the headline, Prowl's fucking dead, you guys. <laughs> Game over, man. Game over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was the point of bringing this up, is that even in terms of the small things, the right words chosen help set the tone for this is what you're about to read. This mm. is what is thematically cohesive for what where we're going forward. And if mm. we used tipping point rather than the turning point, tipping point sounds more ominous more um, suggesting that something bad is about to happen. Hmm. As many of you are now aware, a lot of bad things happen next, but let's not give away the game too quickly. Sure. Like, a turn can be a turn into anything. Mm. Tipping suggests tipping over. You mm. are toppling from where you were, and that can really only go in one direction because of gravity. Yeah, exactly. So we are fully entrenched in the heart of darkness here now. And I mean that not only in the sense that this is the deepest part of this long journey that we've ventured to, just in terms of, you know, chronological progression, or the fact that there is a lot of despairing subject matter and situations that we are confronted with. But I also mean that because it's an apt literary comparison to invoke, as will become clear with our next talking point. You know, I've never actually read the original Heart of Darkness. Like, I'm, I... I understand the oeuvre. I get the basic mise-en-scene. I know mm. about, you know, Mr. Kurtz, he dead. And I know about how um, Apocalypse Now is meant to be a modern reinterpretation 
of that particular arc. I know that there are plenty of and other... And then Spec Ops, the line was yeah, also... Exactly. Yeah, mm. I did read uh, Heart of Darkness uh, in one of my English classes. I forget exactly which stage of education it was, but I was primed with that before going into Spec Ops, so that helped mm-hmm. me to appreciate what it was going for. The The reason I'm holding back on going further into it is because I feel like the intricacies of like why it's... Uh, Mm-hmm. applicable here have to do with uh, your next notes in the document so I will pass the ball back to you before I yeah. go further in all honesty these chapters as well as the ones following immediate after are as dark as they are because they finally fulfilled the foreshadowing that was provided to us all the way back in chapter 3 where Okay, we've had the big confrontation with the Wendigo. We've had the big confrontation with Seth, which we expected due to the lead-up in chapters further on, where Arlington is talking about his experience with them and, like, what do we do if we actually confront the guy? How do we handle the the intricacies of that diplomacy role? Which, of course, as we already found out, there was no diplomacy possible within... Mm what they actually ended up doing and his reaction to it. But, like, they are all technically now out of the picture. And now instead, we... Sorry, I'm just trailing off here a moment because there was very recently a conversation on the Discord in particular about zombie stories and how it'd be like, this isn't a zombie story. This is okay. I'm not going to get too far down this, this road because it was a bit of a contentious thing on the Discord. But it has always been my understanding that the combined genre of science fiction and fantasy has always been about using a setting unlike our own to either tell stories that could exist in our world but with an unfamiliar setting to explore or to tell stories that could not exist in our world, because it would require the existence of something our world does not have. I may have mentioned before that the superset of fiction that sci-fi fantasy belongs to is speculative fiction. If it were not for the existence of the Wendigo and magic, the world of New Century could very easily be straight-up non-fantastical alternate history, much like The Man in the High Castle or the series that Game of Thrones is Benisoff and Weiss, we're going to do about the Confederates winning the Civil War, which, thankfully, will not get made now. But regardless of the setting, a story is almost always centered around characters that we can identify with. The Walking Dead, let's say, isn't about zombies any more than Star Wars is about laser swords. It's just that the show makes for a setting that not only observes what might happen to humanity during a breakdown of society, but also uses the metaphor of the zombie as a way to contrast its characters. I asked my grandpa once if he ever killed any Germans in the war. He wouldn't answer. He said that was grown-up stuff. So I asked if the Germans ever tried to kill him. But he got real quiet. He said he was dead the minute he stepped into enemy territory. Every day he woke up, told himself, rest in peace, now get up and go to war. 
And then after a few years of pretending he was dead, he made it out alive. And that's the trick of it, I think. We do what we need to do, and then we get to live. But no matter what we find in D.C., I know we'll be okay. Because this is how we survive. ourselves that we are the walking dead i don't want to go too far down the mindset that suggests that there is really so little separating out humanity from just becoming horrible people because i don't actually believe that i think that humanity is as likely to reach out with compassion as it is to defend itself with self-interest and selfishness and Mm. do anything in order to survive. I think those are equally likely responses and that everybody isn't just like one bad day away from becoming the Joker, so to speak. Absolutely. And I think that in the context of what we're discussing here of a zombie apocalypse, Mm -hmm. essentially what that, setting does is that it takes the day-to-day interactions of an entire population of people within a civilization mm-hmm. and decomplicates them mm-hmm. it shows who they are under the surface and how they acted before whether it was with self-interest that mm-hmm. meant that they would push other people or this feeling of wanting to find opportunities in their life where they could kick down or find some way to vent their own violent frustrations or the other side of it which is the willingness and the desire to help people where they can Mm -hmm. the difference is that all of these people were navigating the system beforehand Mm -hmm. that is now taken away, which means that who they are is much more visible on and near the surface than what they were beforehand. I mean, I, I guess I could make the argument that we're going to get a little bit more into down the road who it is we become when the chips are down, when we're under stress, because that's going to be a talking point in regards to what happens between Annie and Abigail. You can look at the way our society is right now, where portions of it are still functioning, are still intact, and yet we see that people are doing bad things, that people are behaving poorly to each other. In your country, in my country, pretty sure Mm -hmm. that there are people acting like this in every country. I'm seeing been watching a lot more news about how there's been a swing to the right wing in a lot of European countries and everything like that. And just, yeah, I I can't speak to the 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 relative societies of places that are not my own. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. I understand mine, but like I don't have a good sense of how why things work the way they do in France or work the way they do in Italy or anything like that. I've had people explain to me that, uh, you know, as to why certain politics succeed or everything like that. I even had it explained to me very recently why it is that the Tories have been in 
power as long as they have because of a big fuck up uh, in regards to labor's mishandling of things that made the people at large just not trust anybody else, even if there's plenty of evidence that the Tories aren't necessarily better at it, you know? Mm. It was just so much more pronounced. Yeah, exactly. Everyone gets to point to it and understand and say, oh, well, this went wrong. Mm -hmm. So let's turn to this other side, which we at least can understand functions. It's like, Mm -hmm. no, no, it doesn't. It's just that it's fuck-ups are, they're probably a bit better at hiding their fuck-ups. And the Wendigo is outside. I bet he voted Tory. (laughs) I got to think about that one for a second. Like, (laughs) with the Wendigo... That's that's so like with the text of like New Century. That's so not what the Wendigos are and are meant to embody. <laughs> yeah, and on top of that, the Wendigos don't make judgments. They eat everyone's faces equally. Mm, this isn't like leader. that old. This isn't like that old joke about uh, why didn't the shark bite the lawyer? Professional courtesy. <laughs> Classic. All this dark humor is really like. I would say we're getting distracted and take our mind off this, but it's probably just because we're in a bit of a dark frame of mind with this, the events of these chapters, and our humour kind of reflects that. Yeah, exactly. The only way we can get through dark story matter is to imply black humour, unfortunately. Um, mm. I mean, not all, always, but there is a natural leaning towards that end of the spectrum. But yeah. As we were expecting to a certain degree, without it being made boldly obvious, these chapters are getting into the idea that the greatest threat to humanity is always humanity itself. There was definitely an element of that in Arlington, obviously, because of how that story ended, because of the forces that were working against the Grant administration and against the Arlingtons in particular. But... The thing is, is that on top of Team Steam's confrontation with the people at Green Hollow, we also see that when you're in a moment of despair, when you feel helpless, that even people that are on each other's side can end up lashing out at each other. This is why I invoke Hearts of Darkness, whether it's the original book, or Apocalypse Now, or Spec Ops The Line, honestly, just pick your poison. It is a story that has been told and retold of going into unfamiliar territory and finding someone who has relinquished far too much of their humanity while exploiting the local population. And most importantly, as monstrous and unthinkable as they are, these individuals are still recognisably the shape of a human. This warped point of cruelty and service to an unthinkable logic was, in fact, thinkable, conceived by a person who then chose to enact it. That is what haunts us, and that is the place we find ourselves in in this portion of the book. It's not about how we fight monsters. It is how we treat one another when pushed through the bleakest and most extreme of scenarios. Because these things happen in order, of course, let's focus on Team Steam first. Mm, Yes. Between the damaged Steamheart 
the death of Frau and the developments of the previous chapters come into fruition. I'm not just talking about James and Abigail's conversation in chapter 31, Suspicions, but just like all of the setup, all of the misunderstandings and all of the secrets that have led everybody to this point, the group obviously feels on a knife's edge. I have to add, this is the darkest part of the story to date, because I know, and you do too, dear listeners, that this is only the beginning of how low we can get. I didn't mention this at the beginning. We are just covering chapters 33 and 34 today, primarily because once we get to chapter 35, if you have not read it already, it's going to get worse from there. Mm-hmm. And it's going to, like, we're going to be in this state of worry and despair for our team of heroes until we can finally potentially come back from the edge as a result of the climax of the story. I think that we can probably reveal this at this point without mm. it being too much of a sort of a spoiler. Mm. We have entered the final episode of mm. Steamheart, essentially. Steamheart has been this epic with many different encounters and sort of containable arcs and conflicts and all of these things. And this is kind of the last part of the book. Everything well, I mean, obviously, is... it's it's part four. Well, it's yeah, well, but, but when I say that, I mean how, you know, the whole bit of James's relationship with Rebecca, for example, feels like its own sort of episode of the broader series that Steamheart embodies. This is the two or three part finale mm-hmm. of the series. And I, would, I would definitely say two or three part. I wouldn't necessarily say that each individual chapter by itself could be its own episode no, of television no, no, no. necessarily. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you get in like a sort of an anime or something like that, where mm-hmm. it's like multiple episodes building like different chunks of the broader shape that we think of when we think of that show. And that's what's going on here. Anyway, but this al- is neither here, near, neither here nor there. Yeah. But also like chapters are meant to be dividing points of a story in and of themselves. And mm. while when you have a, a book, there's nothing necessarily preventing you from going right from one chapter into another. It's not quite the same commitment of time as it would be like watching an episode of television mm. and then therefore be like, are you going to binge watch this show the way you would just read a story and just go from one chapter to the next and everything like that? But the way that Alex presents it to us as part of an audio drama, when he releases things for the first time, he always only puts out a chapter at a time. Mm. And we'll only divert from that way of presenting it to the audience if, like, two chapters, when they're done recording, just feel like they're that's too short to release out into the world. And so, therefore, he'll end up combining two chapters or take a part of one chapter and like tack it in on the end of a previous chapter and release that. There's even mm. been an occasion where the contents of one chapter, once it's all recorded with all of its pieces, is so long, he's be like, okay, I need to actually divide this up and release it in two chunks mm. for this weekly presentation 
to an audience that is uh, taking part in the story for the first time rather than reading the book. This happened again very recently, with one of the chapters of Panther Soul released at time of editing. In Alex's own words, trying to sustain the level of intensity he originally wrote was emotionally exhausting if he went beyond the 30-minute mark, which is why what was originally written as one chapter became split into two. And I have to imagine it would feel different if Panther Soul, or indeed Steamheart, or any of the books to this point, were presented in a visual medium like TV episodes. Written as a novel and adapted for an audio drama, Alex and the other actors still have to build the setting for us through narration, because we cannot see the place or the people. A good portion of the story must be told rather than shown. Because even the wonderful voice acting of all involved can only portray a small portion of the nuance that a visual medium would allow for. By itself, Steamheart is about 13 hours and 20 minutes of audio material. And while on paper that could divide very neatly into 13 one-hour episodes of a miniseries, the story would still need to be paced differently if written for that medium. Not to mention, as referenced, a lot of what is now spoken narration would be told through set design, cinematography, and physical acting. Entire portions of the story would be told through flashback, possibly even taken from the separate miniseries of Secret Rooms, Tiger's Eye, and Arlington. But now I'm getting ahead of myself. And at time of recording, Toby had a slightly different take on how Steamheart might look. It's its own discipline of pacing and mm-hmm. release structure that doesn't really have all of comparisons with mm-hmm. other sort of media, even television series, which is mm-hmm. possibly the closest comparison, doesn't quite have that same feeling of, as you say, like a chapter isn't necessarily equivalent to a single episode mm-hmm. of a series. It's hard to know when you sit down with a chapter exactly where you'll end up. That's part of its own unique tension. You're not going Mm -hmm. to sit down and think like, this will tell a complete story or isolated fragment of something. It is joining with others, but it still puts emphasis to its own contents by grouping them together in this one chapter. It ties together in a way Mm -hmm. that no other segmented piece of any other media really can. Mm-hmm. Just out of curiosity, because I've been thinking about this while you've been talking, Yeah, would the arc of Steamheart fit into a single season of television? Or would you end up needing to divide it up into multiple seasons because of how long this story is? Like how the entire story of, say, Avatar The Last Airbender is divided into Book of Water, Book of Earth, Book of Fire. I would say that it would be like some shows that kind of stretch the definition of what a season is. Mm. Like how we were talking about this earlier, Walking Dead at one point stopped being single, unbroken seasons of 13 episodes or something, and then they kind of made them into part one of season seven and then Mm -hmm. this is part two and like there are shows where i'm still waiting on part three of season four the last season and it's just sort of like okay we're really stretching this you season four has been the length of the first three seasons Mm -hmm. let's say new century was a show with each 
book being its own season, I think Steamheart would have been one of those event seasons that would mm. have to be like part one goes all the way up to, let's say, the Southern Cross is its mm. big climactic moment and you end there with maybe a cut back to Frau and Miguel and a tease that the moment where they're about to meet with Team Steam is coming up soon. I I think you could make it work, but it requires a... I don't know what I would cut, but I'm too close to the material to be the one who would be put into the position and role of saying, here's what we cut in order to fit this into a film or a season. Mm-hmm. I think you're onto something there, that if Steamheart was to be re-released into a different format, then if we took everything that happened right up until chapter 20 and made that an entire season, obviously the journey, because like I think about other shows where a journey is kind of the focus of the show. Star Trek Voyager comes to mind. Like it takes them six or seven seasons, basically takes them the entire length of the show before they actually get home, because that's the point of the show is that they're stuck far away from Earth and they're having all of these adventures while trying to get back to Earth and everything like that. Maybe not the best example, though, seeing as Steam Art has a planned ending, where Voyager was ostensibly trying to run as long as they could in order to keep selling ad space. Is Steam Art Red Dwarf? (laughs) I don't know enough about Red Dwarf in order to be able to say. But another great example would be... Oh, Smeg. Well, excuse me. In theory... An example would be The Hobbit, because that's like literally, as Bilbo would put it, there and back again. And that got divided up into three movies. Ostensibly, maybe that wasn't a good choice. I'm not going to get into a debate about that here. It's well-trodden territory. We don't need to tread in it with our hairy Hobbit feet. Yeah, exactly. But in the meantime, if it just had been divided into two movies you could argue that that could have encapsulated, okay, here's a bunch of stuff that happens in the first movie, but we come to a good stopping point, much like the end of Fellowship was a good stopping point for that particular story. It just happens to be that it encapsulated an entire book, so to speak. Like, that's the thing, is that Lord of the Rings was Fellowship, Two Towers, Return of the King, just like the books were Fellowship, Two Towers, Return of the King. Like, if you're going to actually develop characters and add things that are good to add because the original story was so lean on character development for certain things like that, I can definitely see how you would want to divide it into two movies, not because you want to get more money out of the public, but because it makes for a better story overall. When you were talking about your experience, it's like, oh, it's taken forever for this one show to come out with the finished season. That's partly in response to, okay, it takes time to film these things, Mm. and it's competing with different shows for time slots. There's all kinds of reasons as to why things come out on the timetables they do that have nothing to do with creating a story and have everything to do with the bureaucracy of media and Hollywood and everything like that. You can't extract the means and industry of production of a particular piece of media 
away from the experience of it because mm-hmm. it doesn't come out in a vacuum. It does you can't necessarily just watch it in its finished state and you can certainly draw a lot about the narrative so much of it but i think that there's so much meaning to be extracted from actually seeing what was involved in the actual process of putting it together and how that process was on both sides of it for the people making it and for people who were you know waiting for it and what that did to the viewing experience I love how we've suddenly gotten to a discussion on like the the. We are doing everything we can not to talk about these chapters, aren't we? Yes, <laughs> yes, that is exactly the point that I was leading to. That we got onto this side tangent, and we're like, oh well, no, this is this is interesting. Let's see how much content we can milk out of discussions of the intricacies of crafting a story and putting it out on a specific piece of media. All right, fine. Let's talk about the chapters. So. We've talked a lot about the role of order and chaos in the New Century books, but also in other media that we've been discussing, also in its presence in our day-to-day lives. It's specifically relevant in part because we know a lot about Alex's feelings on the subject. It's something he's talked a lot about in reference to New Century, in reference to a lot of other media that he and Sharon have reviewed on School of Movies. And as a result, it plays an overt role in his stories. It is often directly addressed or is thematically addressed. And I bring this up now because one of the things that can be a tremendous source of chaos is the way people feel. As we were referring to earlier, we can see how the sorrow and loss of this moment on the waterfall leads Abby to say things and do things that just cause further chaos, make a bad situation worse. Mm -hmm. I can't entirely blame her any more than I, at least, can blame Star-Lord, for example, for screwing things up with Thanos in Infinity War. It is a truism that people often turn to anger when they are in the throes of despair in particular, because mm-hmm. anger energizes and makes people act and feels empowering, where despair does the reverse and paralyzes. There was a piece of tie-in fiction Unlike tie-in fiction for movies and television shows, these were for Dungeons and Dragons. Specifically, the Forgotten Realm setting that was promoted heavily in the late 80s and early 90s, specifically with the release of the second edition manuals. Forgotten Realms books were my bread and butter for fantasy fiction in my teens and 20s. They dovetailed more with my reading preferences, especially due to a plethora of female protagonists as their mainstays the paladin princess Alisair of Cormier, Midnight, the wizard that we become the new goddess of magic, Erlen Moonblade, an adventurer bound to an ancient elven artifact. The novel I'm about to refer to was the sequel to one of their first books published, whose protagonist was named Alias the Sellsword, someone that reminds me more than a little of one Abigail Gray. Trying to do good in a city that she'd never been in, she was a traveling adventurer, with her companions, and 
she fell in love with the wrong person, someone that was using her to his own ends. And at the climax of the story, where what she wants is revenge, but that's Mm. not necessarily going to be what's best for everybody else involved. She is putting herself and her friends in danger by continuing to try and pursue that revenge. And there's someone that's like, I don't understand why it is that you can't let go of your anger. And one of Alias's best friends points out, if she lets go of her anger, all she has left is despair. And who wants to feel that? She is trying Mm. to avoid despair, trying to avoid the feelings of loss that come from the betrayal of a love that was true for her, even if it was not true for him. It was that book in particular that referred to despair as the evil without a color. Mm. I think I've just had a realization about why we are so drawn to stories about revenge. Mm. And I've often thought of it in its like as in quite literal terms of just how it is a captivating concept to explore because it is looking at an emotion that is rooted in conflict. It needs conflict in order for it to exist. It is the human expression of conflict because someone has wronged you and you seek to enact that wronging on someone else. You are so desperate for a form of justice that Mm. that justice becomes corrupted in some way. And all of that is rich and rife for melodrama and not just melodrama but quite human feelings of powerlessness in Mm. horrifically unfair situations but in tandem with that I think that there is actually a sort of more metaphorical avenue that we could take with revenge that takes it and breaks it down into something much more day-to-day and human and actually relatable to everyone Mm. because not everyone has had some great wrong enacted onto them by another human agent of some Mm -hmm. form. The actual idea of revenge is something that not a lot of us have been able to necessarily live through on as intense a scale as that. We've all, like, had some moment where we wanted to get back at someone that's Mm -hmm. like a certainty but what i'm meandering my way to get at is that i think that in a lot of ways the idea of the revenging protagonist this person who the entire story is examining what will happen if they get their revenge and why maybe this is a path not best trodden down but they have to fulfill this, they pursue it so obsessively, is that we can relate to that idea of having a goal in our lives that we become so fixated on that it ends up defining us and Mm. overtaking us. Like, say, Abigail's goal of being able to choose her own path rather than people or circumstances choosing for her. And you pursue it because in this cyclical, almost parasitic fashion, Mm -hmm. you feel as if this thing that you once chose to pursue because of your own individual context and personality 
the goal becomes your personality and you mm. pursue it with such fervor because to abandon it would be to abandon this thing that you have defined yourself to be the idea of how so many of these stories go of the the hollowness of pursuing this goal of revenge and feeling like it is this grand meaningful goal to pursue and obtain and once you do more often than not it is a hollow victory i think is actually quite relatable to a lot of people in the sense that you can pursue something with so much fervor and then when you get it the world remains you remain and you have to ask who you are when the thing you have dedicated yourself to challenging and reaching and overcoming is behind you. I didn't realize that we were going to quote Undertale twice in two episodes. In spite of everything, it's still you. Yeah. <laughs> it's this quote that keeps on giving. Yeah. But... Mind, with my non sequitur editorial insert earlier. I'm not trying to suggest that Abby's search for agency in her life is a bad thing. Merely that, like revenge, a goal pursued single-mindedly and without consideration for consequence can have unintended negative side effects. Like, say, damaging important relationships. There is a lot baked into what you were just talking about in terms of what you make a part of your identity and what you will do in order to defend that. That mm. ties into a whole lot of toxic fandom conversations mm. and stuff like yes. that. Or even just like someone's politics become their identity. Someone's religion becomes their identity. And mm. they have nothing in their lives aside from that. So if it comes under attack, then we defend it past the point of reason. And in a sort of different sense and we can see how like a lack of certainty in what we're doing can mm -hmm. compromise our sense of self we can see that in uh, let's practice some actual specificity of the text we're talking about annie has no idea what she should be doing mm. she is very willful in still trying to do Sorry. the right thing you're saying Annie doesn't know what she should be doing or Abby doesn't know what she should Annie, be doing? Annie, I, I did actually think this through okay. because uh, after the encounter, and we will come circle back to Abigail, Annie following the moment when her orders from Arlington are laid bare for all to see, she, in her narration, is asking, what is she supposed to do? Mm, like, keep mm. her promise to a dead man? or protect this thing that can protect everyone? Is she supposed to ignore that and protect her friend? She doesn't know what the right thing is to do. And because she is the captain who has to know what to do so that she can drive the rest of the group forward. This is the Navy. Where commanding officers are mighty and terrible thing. Man to be feared and respected. All-knowing, all-powerful. Don't you dare say what you said to the boys back there again. I don't know. Those three words will kill a crew, dead as a depth charge. You're the skipper now. And the skipper always knows what to do, whether he does or not. If she doesn't know what she's doing, is she a captain? If she isn't a captain, who is she? A response that she has to that is, 
taking some sort of comfort from the escape that's the idea of turning into a wendigo would be mm. that she feels so lost in who she is that she like indulges the thought of what if i was no one at all mm. yeah that comes up again in this chapter in terms mm. of where, where she's actually deliberately thinking about that moment when she is in the throes of her own despair as well mm. no i definitely i can see where you're going with that now to come back to Abigail's anger, because she's the one that sort of sets this particular train into motion, so to speak. Ironic that Steamheart has come to a sudden stop. <laughs> yes, exactly. Irony writ large there. Um, <laughs> I don't think they appreciate the irony. No, no. It's, it's well, they don't. They're they're currently dealing with their own issues, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And point of fact, if you and I were there commenting on what was going over there, I can just picture Annie and Abby turning to us and he's going, will you shut up? Look, Greg, as a Greek chorus, we probably would have been shot 20 chapters ago. <laughs> now I'm suddenly thinking of the Dukes of Hazard and just picturing, <laughs> like, Steamheart going... Them boys. <laughs> yeah, well, them Steamheart boys are in some real trouble now. <laughs> <sighs> all right, all right. Anger. You have to laugh. You yeah, have to laugh. I, I do. I, I do have to laugh. You're absolutely right. <laughs> These moments do buoy me up and make mm. me more able to uh, address what's coming forward. Yeah. I had my own experience very recently with having a moment of just supreme anger and I'll I'll talk a little bit more about it in a second but something I've always understood just based on my own experience but also watching it play out with others the biggest problem with anger as a response to despair is that anger is often uncontrollable one could argue that Taika Waititi knew exactly what he was doing when he set Thor and Hulk next to each other look like Raging fire, die like smoldering fire. <laughs> you know, like there is there is anger in both of them, but even Hulk understands that his anger is more out of control, whereas Thor very often manages to channel his anger into useful action rather than just letting it blaze out of control, to mm. use the fire metaphor. Intriguingly enough on the subject of anger. There is even a part of the same chapter where Harry is angry for one of the few times in her life. Oh, it's so glorious. It is. It's 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 wonderful. But instead of her anger getting out of control, she manages to focus it into what she's doing in comparison to Abby, who just lets her own emotions blaze out of control. I mean, to a certain extent... Abby does not necessarily go as far as she could. She's trying to prevent herself from, like, punching Annie or anything like that. But, like, it still doesn't change the fact that even though she is just, like, saying, look, I'll continue to work with you, we're going to get home and everything like that, but to throw down the gauntlet and say that you and I are done, that still damages anything that they're going to do going forward. One wonders... If Abby had been more out of control, maybe it wouldn't have been as bad. Because she is hurting, and instinctively wants to hurt Annie back. That's often what you do. 
when you're feeling betrayed by someone. She may not use her fists, but she definitely threw a punch. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. The thing is, Abby's really quite shitty at this point. That doesn't mean that I struggle to sympathize or empathize, because I do. She is stretched so thin at this point. The whole team is. After losing the team's greatest source of protection, one that was true and honest to the end, Abby confronting her remaining guardian to unveil Annie's hidden agenda that runs counter to Abigail's own safety, that's obviously quite a titanic straw to break a beaten camel's back. But, as I said earlier, it's not just her. The entire team is hurting. The image that came to my mind as you were discussing the way that all of them get hit by this and that it sort of ripples out is that Hrau's death is a billiard ball that's hit into all the other balls on the table Mm. and they all go out on their own trajectory but sometimes on that trajectory of the shock of that impact they collide and clash with one another i like that metaphor a great deal because i'm just imagining like you know as the cue ball crashes into all the rest of them that was the term um, i couldn't um, think of it (laughs) yeah exactly and the ball that represents harry seems to move violently in one direction but actually manages to like get in a pocket and move everybody else forward where in the meantime Abigail's ball bounces off a couple of other things and then sends Annie's ball spinning. I don't, okay, I don't know if this metaphor actually works, but like you get where I'm going. The image at the very least conveys an emotion, even if it does break down if we Mm -hmm. unpack it. Yeah, the entire team is hurting. And when Abigail feels further pained, she whether willingly or just instinctively, puts out further hurt. We, of course, know how betrayed Abigail must feel, but we can't help but feel Annie's perspective because we are taking her perspective in this moment, as this is a segment rated by Annie. Mm -hmm. We know how hard she is trying, how conflicted she is in all of this, And when Abigail motions towards the cliff edge, we see the moment through Annie's eyes. So we're fooled a little bit alongside her. In an unfair situation, I would say this is an unfair move. By the time we see the group planning their next move, she's positively being an asshole. It's definitely necessary that we feel the strain on the group and... Abigail is the best candidate to talk candidly. But in comparison to when she did a similar thing earlier on when hunting with Butler, her insistent questions when he's trying to just get everyone together and put together some forward plan of action, her insistent questions feel a whole lot more deliberately cutting. It's not like before when she was trying to sort of lift up the rock to see what was underneath and when she could tell that she had got at something a bit raw, she did sort of apologise, even though she then proceeded to keep asking questions. Mm -hmm. Here, it feels as if like her 
poking holes in Butler's plan is almost like deliberately undermining it. It's valid. It totally is because like this is an impossible situation. Abigail can't help but question authority, and that is a virtue. But it says something that after this tragedy, where the whole team needs to regroup if they are to survive this, she seems to use the recent confirmation of Annie and Frank's orders to put them at a distance and view them as another authority figure to buck against, not an ally to confide in and work through a tough situation with. It's petty, it's not a good look, and it's unfortunately not just Abigail who's feeling this way, as the one who is the most honest with the way she currently feels and expresses herself, Abigail is the temperature check to indicate the general spirits of the rest of the party, and they are at an all-time low. See, the important thing here to recognize with this situation is that it isn't just that Abigail is questioning authority because there's a level to which you question authority because like is this the right situation do you have an underlying motivation here but in this particular case she's just being a complete naysayer she's not coming up with an alternate idea she's Mm. just trying to shoot down other people's ideas because she is angry and feels betrayed by frank and annie Her anger, her questioning isn't actually... Constructive. It's not constructive in any way. It's literally just doing something because she can't let go of her anger because she wants to undermine these people who she considered friends and now feels like she can't trust. And you know what is really strange, but an indication of how successful... Abigail is written as a character is that I'm glad she's like this Mm. it's hard for me to articulate why but I think it's because Abigail is such a protagonist of these books she is someone Mm. who we are so propelled with not just to we're not just propelled to feel sympathetic to her or to want to see where she goes we feel that she feels we Mm -hmm. understand where she's coming from and we are right there in the trenches with her Mm -hmm. and it feels as if you are rooting so much for her and when she acts this way you can see that it comes from a lot of the same places that her best characteristics come from and that's always to me a sign of a strong character that you can identify some core foundational thing about them and from that source of origin is where all of their best virtues and their most petty faults come from Uh, you know it's the Tony Stark effect where for as much as we think about Tony Stark and his comparison in these books we think of James in a lot of ways I also think of Abigail in the sense that Tony is unflappably Tony and that means that he can make some brilliant triumphs happen but he is also responsible for some just stupid mistakes along the way because we are ourselves yes in every single circumstance 
And sometimes the way we are can, at our best can be a strength and can push everything forward and get amazing things done. But the nature of ourselves when we are, are not at our best, when we, especially when we are at our worst, there are natural pros and cons to every construct of the way someone is. I can see this in myself that the way I tackle things measuredly can also cause me to be paralyzed by not, okay, what is the next thing that I do? And I'm thinking about all the different options and then I end up doing nothing. Mm. You know, there's, there, there's always two sides to a personality. Like, can you make the aspects of yourself work in your favor or are you going to be dragged down with the downsides of the way you are? a strong identity in a fictional setting and sometimes in reality is a finely crafted double-edged sword it occurs to me and i hadn't thought of this parallel previously but like sometimes you are not actually yourself when you are feeling despair you are the the devil speaking in the back of your head or you mm. are the frustration you feel towards whoever it is you're talking to because of some previous conflict or slight that is definitely wrapped up in Annie and Abby's conversation at the waterfall could be argued that there are several points in multiple stories where that's relevant. But the one that comes to mind is the conflict between Malcolm Reynolds and wash in the out of gas episode. This is a, a episode of firefly where all of a sudden their craft is broken down. You get that beacon sent? Yeah, it's uh, pointless. What was that? Nothing, sir. It's a brilliant plan. I'm sure we'll all be safe. I'm getting a little weary of this attitude wash. Are you? Well, I'm so very sorry, sir. I guess the news that we're all going to be purple and bloated and fetal in a few hours has made me a little snippy. It's possible someone might pick up that signal. No, Mal. It's not possible. No one's going to pick up the damn signal. You wanted us flying under the radar, remember? Well, that's where we are. Out of range of anyone or anything. Then make it go further. I... What? Make the signal go further. Can't make it go further. Not if all you're going to do is sit around here and whinge about it. No. What do you expect me to do, Mal? Whatever you have to. And if you can't do it from here, then get a suit on and go outside on the side and of the boat. And what? Wave my arms around? Wave your arms around. Jump up and down. Divert the nav sass to the transmitter. Whatever. Divert the... Right. Because teenage pranks are fun when you're about to die. Give the beacon a boost, wouldn't it? Yes. Now, it would boost the signal. But even if some passerby did happen to receive, all it would do is muck up their navigation. Could be that's true. Damn right, it's true. They'd be forced to stop and dig out our signal before they could even go anyplace. Well, maybe I should do that then. Maybe you should. Okay. Good. Fine. Hey. Look what you two think you're doing. Fighting at a time like this. Use up all the air. <laughs> <laughs> like, the point is, is that Wash's behavior is not helpful, but it's at least honest in, like, you know, we all make mistakes. We all don't necessarily see all sides of it. And sometimes the despair just brings up the anger for no other reason, again, that because we don't want to feel the despair. So it's easier to get angry, even if it's not actually useful to the situation. 
a lot of people's sort of hot takes or uh, broad criticisms that we see on like Twitter or just like online in general of media engagement can really target moments in stories where a character acts illogically or does something that is unlikable Mm -hmm. because a lot of the time people believe that the objective of media is to have characters that act logically and act in an entertaining and therefore likable and approachable way but that's not actually true to life no it isn't people constantly behave irrationally and that's Mm. just a facet of humanity yes okay if it's written in a certain way where it feels like, well, they were this this entire time, they shouldn't be acting like this. There can be bad writing that is not true to the characters and just creates drama for drama's sake. The question you should always ask with character actions and decisions is not, is this illogical just in a detached objective sense? The question you have to ask is, is this in character? Is this something that feels like it stems from some core defining part of who they are? And that's yeah. why people will harp on about uh, Star-Lord's decision in mm-hmm. Infinity War, whereas I always find it to be precisely in character for him because it is the mm-hmm. exact same impulse as what we see at the end of Volume 2, mm-hmm. where the villain in that says something that confirms that he killed someone that Peter loved. He had no time and no thought for any sort of broader long-term strategy. He just started firing. Mm -hmm. And in this, he started punching. And the first time around, we celebrated because in a lot of ways, it was the right move. Mm -hmm. But as soon as that impulse is driven towards something that feels as if it was the wrong move, that it is the irrational move, it becomes so much more easy for people to harp on about it. And it's like, oh, this is who this person is. And by all means, you shouldn't just dismiss any criticism of when a character acts completely out of sync with not just logic, but who they have been set up to be up to this Mm -hmm. point misjudged writing can take all sorts of forms but it Mm -hmm. is not just a logic puzzle Mm -hmm. people are more complex than a math equation there are so many different variables which people don't account for that make up all the parts of them then this is why two people can have a similar experience but have wildly different reactions to it based on all of their experiences up to that point how that one event is fed into their personality matrix partly determines what comes out on the other end. You think it's the same equation, but it really isn't. You know, it's strange. The quote that comes to mind of all things is to apply what uh, the Tenth Doctor says about time travel in the episode of Blink, where... (laughs) A lot of people think that uh, in stories, people should be this scenario and logical outcome, which is a very linear way of viewing things. But mm-hmm. actually, people are much more complex and they will fold in them themselves and there will be compounding motivations. And sometimes they will 
go back on their decisions and that's what people do they aren't just a line of decisions that only ever have one outcome mm. they will bend and branch out and do all sorts of things that's what time travel stories are about is people reevaluating and looking on the course of a life and the decisions taken time travel is the expression of the idea of reevaluating our own past and wondering about the other decisions we could have made so in that sense people are much like time travel people assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect but actually from a non-linear non-subjective viewpoint it's more like a big ball of wibbly wobbly timey wimey stuff before we move off this point this I'll... good stuff by the way <laughs> yeah it is it's very good stuff before we move off this point, I will add, because I hinted at this earlier, I've been dealing with some of my own issues recently in regards to family conflict and just seeing a bunch of events coming forward to result in what's probably going to be a lot of stress down the pike in the coming days, weeks, and months. Uh, I'm not going to get into it because it's a little bit too personal for me to Put out there into the general public but i didn't have a great day today i specifically wanted to record with you today in order to sort of take off some of the stress and everything but as i was driving back and just feeling wrung out from a lot of labor and a lot of worrying about what's going to happen next i actually had an occasion where someone was honking at me behind my car and ugh, for one of the few times in my entire life, I actually just had a moment of uncontrollable rage. It's thinking to myself, not only what the fuck is this person's problem, but as they're pulling around beside me, for a moment I had this impulse to swerve my car into his. Be like, no, you're not getting around me. And I looked at the window at this guy and just completely went off. I was swearing at him. It didn't take the it didn't take all that long. It was like 15, 20 seconds of just pure unadulterated rage. And then I realized that I was just instinctively not in a good place. And before I could take it any further, I just pulled away from the guy. And when he tried to pull up later on and yell back at me, I just didn't respond to him because I knew that trying to follow up on this was not going to lead anywhere useful. You took yourself out of the situation. As, as best I could, because mm. I could feel myself getting out of control. And I'm always worried about my emotions causing me to be out of control, causing this chaos mm. in me. I worry about what I would become if I completely lost myself to anger. And so I put a lot of effort into never reaching that point. Mm. But the fact that I did for one of the few times in my life gives an impression when the chips are down, when we have nothing left to hold ourselves back, even someone like me who puts so much effort into being diplomatic, into avoiding conflict in terms of de-escalation, in terms of trying to prevent issues from happening, I can still end up going to that place and it scares me, you know. We've talked a lot on this particular recording session about how people are fallible. Mm. People are capable of expressing anger 
and that that doesn't compromise the people that they are even if in that moment they say and behave in a way that they would not in any other environment or circumstance and so i bring that all of that up to just say that that's okay mm. it's not okay when it's goes from being this thing that you are in when you're pushed to an extreme and it goes from that to just a place that you stay and that becomes just the background noise of every moment of every day that's when the anger seeps in and does some real long-term harm mm. but that is not who you are and i guess i will just say that all of us here on the extended through the window team are here to help greg on his bad days and that sounds like this is some sort of ongoing problem of like oh greg like he drove into through the windows the offices today and he was like a he was a maniac or something like that no <laughs> uh no we are here to help him through hard days not just myself but the extended window team which includes uh, Sarah, are all here to show our support and mm -hmm. to help. He has always been absolutely a part of my harder days when I am not the best version of myself, and he has done so much immeasurable good. I can't to... actually remember if I've ever seen you get supremely angry. I know that you, there have been some moments that have been there was definitely. There was definitely a good more than a month of last year that I was just angry all mm. the time for issues that pretty much everyone listening to this will remember. But you helped me to mm. channel that and to just control that a bit better. All of this is to say that what you are talking about and what you did was you were in a place that was just the anger needed to come out mm. and you managed to take yourself out of there these characters cannot mm. they are stranded with mm. each other and that is why for as much as we think like abigail is being shitty for having to for venting this anger in a way that feels specifically designed to hurt someone you kind of have to also think, where else is this anger going to go? She can't take herself away from this. Mm. Annie does the best she can to do something like that, where she walks away and vents. But I think Abigail has always felt trapped inside Steamheart from the very yeah. beginning. Her own stress has already mm. been building up over all this time. And it's manifested in terms of, as you say, being trapped in Steamheart. It's manifested in terms of the turmoil between her relationship with James. It's manifested in terms of just the, the ongoing feeling that things happen and she doesn't have enough agency to deal with it in the way that she wants it dealt with, or the, at the very least, to have any effect on what happens at all. It always seems to be someone else's decision, whether it's to go on the trip in the first place, or it's Harry choosing to break up with her, 
or whatever it is. This even comes up in some of the next chapters we're going to cover after this, where she deliberately says, I agree with you, just like she agreed with Harry. I just didn't want the decision taken away from me again. Oh, God. She she understands her own issues, her own damage. But when we do not have the resources, the spoons, one might say, in order to manage problems that come down the pike, then the toxic stuff will come out sometimes. And it speaks to our own nature, how good we are at dealing with it when we are out of control. Hmm. I, I like to think that because I didn't let it get any further than just a brief flare-up, that that speaks well to me in terms yeah. of not being an inherently violent person, as it so mm. often seems like men are. Like we are taught that anger is supposed to be a good thing. They are taught that we're supposed to solve our problems with violence. But I, I managed to hold myself back from being anything more than just like a small solar flare that got through outside of me and then I was able to pull it back in. But it doesn't change the fact that it didn't feel good or empowering when it happened. It just felt like I was losing control. And that reflective, that capacity for reflective feeling is everything. Mm. (sighs) Moving off this point slightly, because in addition to the anger, as we got into, like everyone's feeling pain and everyone responds to it differently. You mentioned a moment ago about Annie going off into the woods and needing to cry out her own frustration and despair. Just like she mentioned doing all the way back in Secret Rooms that she needs... Excellent continuity. Exactly, yes. And once she is able to get her stuff out, we see her later able to help Miguel process his pain. And we even see how Harry is dealing with hers through work, through trying to get Steamheart back up and running. She isn't just despairing over her baby being damaged. She is trying to actively fix it because it's not just about Steamheart. It's about making sure that everybody else remains safe and everybody Mm. else is able to get home. We've said many times that Steamheart is the team, is Harry. So for Harry, Mm. working on Steamheart is some small way of working on the team and working on herself. She is literally doing Mm. self-maintenance. Hmm. We're going to come back to that later. Maybe not this time, but there's definitely a Hmm. point in uh, one of our later outlines where something happens that I'd forgotten happened, and we see it, how it plays out for Harry, not only leads into uh, a critical moment of the story, but also leads in, it also is reflective of uh, how Harry responds to trauma and where she decides to put her efforts instead of just wallowing in feeling. She instead goes to where she is strong. Hmm. And in this particular case, where she is strong is fixing things, basically. So, So yeah. This is technically something that has already happened by the time that we are presently at, but because it's a detail that is revealed in a future book, I will Uh, keep it as basic as I can and just say... 
that we have seen another moment where a feeling of Harry's is embodied and expressed via a watch. Yeah. The people who know, know. In point of fact, someone, our audience members may already be aware of this, not simply if they've read the book in which this comes up, but uh, it was a talking point in one of our early interviews of Mm. our cast members. Moving along in terms of the pain of the team, we don't see what's going on in Frank's head, though it seems clear that he's having some issues. And that isn't helped by, as referred to earlier, Abby challenging him on everything. He is attempting to take the place of Annie to a certain extent because she mm-hmm. is she's implying her empathy to help other people through situations, but she's not as much being the captain, so to speak. She's deferring a little bit to Frank while she's having an issue. And Mm. Frank is definitely like, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And Abby's like, how the hell are you going to accomplish that? And and Frank is like, well, I better damn well accomplish it because we got to do something. We can't just Mm. sit here with our thumbs up our asses. Uh, Pardon my French. The reason we don't see inside Frank's head is because Frank is doing what he is best at, being a support. That is his version of what Harry is doing, which is that Mm. in a crisis, they're leaning into their work, they're leaning into their role on the team, and Frank is support. He supports those around him, and if he can't do that, and Abigail poking holes in what he's offering and suggesting is getting in the way of him trying to help the situation in some way, trying to get some sort of support for the team and for Annie, then that compromises who he is. And that's why we see his temper flare up because that's where we start to see how much the situation is getting to him because he's not allowed to cope. Supporting others is how he copes. And my God, I relate. Yeah, that's actually a fascinating take on the situation. Be like, okay, I'm going to use my skills in order to solve the problem. How the hell are you going to accomplish that? Frank's like, well, fuck you too. I have to. (laughs) This is what I can do. Why the fuck are you saying no? You need this too. Fuck you, let me help you. (laughs) (laughs) By the same token, we don't see inside Jeremy's head either. Like, Mm. Jeremy does contribute overall to chapter 33, particularly in the conversation that Harry has with him later. But we don't see an outward manifestation of whatever pain he's going through. Not so much for Raven either, although he also does his best in order to support what Miguel is going through, just like Annie is is being a help to that regard. But at one point, even he is uh, is talking back to Frank because he's having a hard time not being himself in this regard either. When Raven says, like, fuck you too, that, like, that feels less like a... That hurts less. That just feels like how Raven says good morning. (laughs) That is actually an excellent point, especially given how we know where the influence of his character has come from either. But Mm. part of what I reflected on when I was reviewing this chapter, I'm wondering if the events of chapter 32, that the whole conflict with Seth and Brioth and the Wendigo have made his post-Sytash feelings even worse. 
His meaning Jeremy, not Raven. Unfortunately, that was a poor transition of thought. Having said that, you know, the fact that he's able to carry on this conversation with Harry shows that he's not being too internal. Like, even Harry isn't retreating too far into herself. She did for a bit, but then she's like, she comes back after having those internal conversations with herself. She does like, okay, I know what I'm going to do to work on the machine now and just gets to it. She doesn't get completely subsumed in her own despair. It is kind of a shame that we don't get to check in more with Raven and Jeremy and get a closer look at how this moment has affected them. But having said that, as is evident from the insights that we were able to come up with in the conversation just now, I think what we do get gives us enough to have a firm enough idea. Raven sits with Miguel, knowing to give him space, understanding that this is an inconsolable loss. Even Annie doesn't bring up Crow herself. No one can comprehend it, much less grasp what it would feel like for this one-of-a-kind creature and, indeed, person to be lost to the world and to her son. The one thing they can provide, if not total understanding of what it is he is going through, is assurance of company and the support of their presence. Raven says that without having to say it by sitting with him, and Annie specifically addresses this, hoping it is one concern that she can take off the table for him. You have lost the person that means the most to you, but I hope that you understand that you still have a family in us. You are not completely alone now, even though we respect that we cannot replace her. We can, at the very least, provide you with some measure of support. The thing that Hrau brought to Miguel's life that he had not had for a very long time because he had lived with his father mm. is stability and certainty of shelter and support. Mm-hmm. And with the loss of Hrau, maybe Annie is able to intuit this, but it would be very easy for Miguel to fall into crisis mode of thinking... I have lost any and all hope of shelter and protection that someone will care enough about me to want me to be safe. Annie can't reassure him of much, but she can say that you are cared enough about that you will be okay. Mm. We also get the feeling overall that it's entirely possible that given what he has taken away from his time with Harau, that he would be able to fend for himself to a degree. Oh, yeah, yeah. But Hrau also provides something that he also never got from Francisco, which is emotional support, which is connection. Yes. It does make sense that Annie would still be concerned about all his needs, however. Looking back at what she experienced with the wolves and the loss of her father, it's no wonder what she addresses dovetails with her own past. And as far as Jeremy goes, I have to imagine that he would be devastated by Hrau's loss because if the journey to Saitash was all of the negative, horrible consequences that come from venturing beyond the rainbow, Hrau was everything good that could be gained Mm. from that. 
she was this brilliant new thing and a singular friend and connection to boot. And after Jeremy has this impulse of his to chase the paranormal and the unknown frontiers of other worlds, fundamentally shaken by Saitash, all the good that comes from this driving motivation of his has now been taken away. As we will see in the coming chapters, now all he is left with is here. This world filled with people and the unimaginable things that they are capable of doing to one another. I actually went back and double-checked. He literally highlights that he doesn't consider the experience of Saitash a failure because they managed to connect with Rao. Honestly, it's a wonder that he's not more downtrodden than he is. And we're mm. going to go on to talk about the conversation between Jeremy and Harry in just a moment. But, like, it's impressive that he's functional. It's impressive that any of them are functional, but mm. it's definitely impressive that Jeremy is able to not be more than just a catatonic state. Mm -hmm. To discuss that conversation between Harry and Jeremy in further detail, the fact that the conversation has to happen at all is a reflection of how privileged our group has been in general. That they have been able to live in a place where their peers accept them for who they are, no matter race, religion, or sexual orientation. So conversations are had in terms of having to exist in a place that would be unaccepting of them for all their differences to the quote-unquote normal world, or at the very least, the way society is at that point in American history. Not that D.C. was a hotbed of acceptance, considering how the events of Arlington played out. And let's face it, 2023 is not doing that much better. Just that they could isolate themselves from that negative experience, especially Harry, who was deliberately being protected by her family and given a place that she could flourish in without having to deal with the same hardships that they themselves had, particularly when they were slaves. Everything about how Green Hollow is introduced to the story ambushes us. The appearance of the men to lead Steamheart to the settlement is abrupt, but we make sure to have the full conversation with Harry about how people in this part of the country are likely to think, which injects this with tension before they even arrive. Even when they do, there is nothing reassuring about what they are giving off. This is not, oh, like we've been in the heart of darkness up against Seth and the Wendigo, and now we are saved because we're with people now. Their arrival doesn't put us at ease. There is mm. no attempts at cordiality, even if they aren't openly hostile, and there are no details that they offer about Butler. Annie herself seems to sense that there is a problem, and we see it through her response. Of course, we're familiar with her form of diplomacy. It's almost a customer service face that she puts on whenever she's dealing with any unknown quantity, being friendly and hospitable in order to encourage others to be the same. But there is an ineffable quality to how her simple thanks to the Green Hollow Men feels different even to that. 
more like the Southern Belle Dame they would expect rather than the leader she is. Mm. That's part of the reason why Frank went off on his own as being a representative because he potentially knew that the people of these parts would not necessarily respect a woman that approached them in the same way that he would approach them. Mm. Before we move on further to Green Hollow, I wanted to go over that scene where Harry is talked to about the awful and uncomfortable truths about the way some see the world and act. It is heartbreaking, but well handled. It's a key moment for her character, one where the team has run out of options and can no longer shield her from this. And it's notable that Abigail, despite being present and having a bad outlook towards Annie right now, and clearly being abrasive in a lot of circumstances, doesn't actually chime in or disrupt the conversation. She knows this needs to be said, and she lets Annie be the one to say it. I mean, I can certainly understand that she doesn't want to do further damage to Harry. Like, her feelings against Annie aside, to be a naysayer in this moment would be potentially damaging to someone she cares greatly about. And so, therefore, she finds it within her to hold back. Hmm. The scene that follows between Harry and Jeremy is a much-needed moment of uplifting connection, where all that stuff we touched on about Jeremy being one of the few members of the group that Harry could conceivably discuss her sexuality with, who would have some idea of what she's going through, we finally get to see that scene happen. The conversation's proximity to the discussions of racism in these parts pushes the absolute illogical bullshit of it all onto Harry. She is being told that people would hate her for the colour of her skin and the contents of her heart, and that to be even somewhat tolerable to these people, she has to act dumb and not be the inventive thinker that she is. She would have to dehumanise herself in Mm. order to be accepted by people that automatically dehumanize her. And Mm. to act like a person would only make them angrier because obviously she's not. Every aspect of who she is is laid at her feet as something that is likely to offend these people. And her response says it all. Show your workings out, motherfuckers. (laughs) I had forgotten that she dropped the MF bomb in Steamheart. And I think it's partly because Lareda went into such detail during our first interview about how much she wanted Harry to swear in Mm -hmm. future stories. It was like, oh, okay, so she hasn't done it yet. But no, she's had her big swearing moment already. And Mm -hmm. obviously, because we like Harry, because we want her to express her frustration we naturally want to see her not be withdrawn. We want to see her be powerful. We want to see her speak her mind. And it's already clear that she's in a place right now to be able to do so, even if she is still in the middle of working through her own personal arc, and Steamheart is just the beginning of that. Mm. When we first meet her, she's in the workshop with 
Edison nattering on mm-hmm. and riding roughshod over her in a lot of ways, in the sense that he just he has to be the sole voice speaking in the room. Mm-hmm. And from that early point, all you want is for her to be the person who is clearly the smartest person in the room, get to say, shut the fuck up and <laughs> let the people who know what they're talking about do the talking. Mm-hmm. Her statement here, it's a hilarious and defiant statement, but the sentiment is real and grave. This makes no sense, you intolerant assholes. Cracker ass, cracker! Cracker ass, cracker! I'll put my foot in the cracker ass, cracker ass, cracker! I wish that cracker would have said some shit to me. Saltine-ass motherfucking cracker. Motherfucking cracker. Kiss my ass, you fucking cracker. But for all the unfairness, Jeremy is an island of calming, reassuring kindness. Like with the others, he does what he does best as his means of rallying himself and remembering himself. Mm. His words offer practical advice on how to live with this, and his willingness to hear her story about how she first knew is not just acceptance, but camaraderie in this matter, when it feels as if the world is telling her that she doesn't get to have these things. I think it also makes a difference that, in spite of the fact that they are on equal footing in regards to sexuality, he understandably would have an easier time of passing in quote-unquote polite society Mm. Mm. uh, as a result of it's easier to hide your sexuality. It's almost impossible to hide your race unless you happen to be very light-skinned and people assume that you're just, oh, you're just very tan as opposed to having African or any other kind of ethnic background that isn't pure-blooded Aryan white. Mm-hmm. Which is not to say that people with the same lack of melanin can't be bigoted against each other. Anything that sets you off as different can cause others to be biased against you. Cultural differences, religious differences, speech patterns, and even the shape of your face and the color of your hair. Anti-Semitism exists to this day, and a plurality of Jews are as light-skinned as I am or more so. But in the U.S., the specter of slavery hangs over all black America to a far greater degree than in any other first world nation. And somehow, that well is so poisoned that even other minorities will be bigoted against black people. And that's the way white nationalists like it, pitting all of us against each other so that they stay on top. I've gotten into before about how people assume that I'm purely white based on how I speak, Based on my name, I have a significant Mexican background that no one would be aware of because I don't have any of the hallmarks. And even my father, whose skin is much darker than my own, because he has a last name like Downing and because he doesn't have a Mexican accent, people also assume that, again, he's like George Hamilton. He just has a dark complexion and he's 100% white. It's going to be even more difficult for Harry, and Jeremy is well aware of this, but it also sounds like, based on some of the way that he says he talks about his experience and, you know, how he's had to hide who he is being with Donald, he's probably been through some shit. 
as much as I was saying a moment ago that they're able to exist in a place that is accepting of them, he probably was not always this way. There is something in between him going out to, you know, find a leprechaun with his friend all the way back in chapter three and where we first met him in Arlington that suggests that he has probably been a target himself. He is speaking from a place of knowing, not just a place of theory. Hmm. There's a very good video recently of, uh, to be honest, a very good channel, uh, James Summerton. He's someone who does these video essays, uh, and they are a respectable length of only one hour rather than five hours on mm. how Roblox made the oomph sound effect, which is... <laughs> That's an Age Bomber guy reference, and the video in question is actually quite good, even though I don't always enjoy his stuff. But moving swiftly along... He has a very sharp analytical eye with media, and as a gay man, he approaches a lot of the media that he talks about with specifically trying to talk about how, like, not all of these videos are about reading queer theory or, like, how they are about the existence of being gay. And he's done a video talking about media literacy and attack on titan and lgbt stuff doesn't really come into that at all but he's done a video recently which is about the online web series hell of a boss the title is along the lines of we need bad gays and mm. the idea is that a lead voice in the series is this comedy channel that has existed for a long time and the comedian is Brandon Rogers, who is, I believe, a gay man who has a lot of comedy that is crass and gross and mm. makes these caricatures of people who are like just distorted versions of the types of people that they are. He has been criticized by some as being a gay comedian that gives gays a bad name or something that he's not the example of that we want to put out there of like how gay people can be but he is suggesting that there is something about this which feels insidious it's like do we have to always be putting on such an effort to please the heteronormative mainstream to try to convince them that we belong at the table when really it's just a matter of shouldn't we be allowed to express some frustration and not have to meet the standards that they dictate that people ought to be, that we ought to be. And that's kind of the feeling I get in this scene, is that it is Harry seeing all of these opinions that she is being told the people around her will have, and that she has to change the way she behaves to meet their standards, to meet their dictation of how the world and how she should be. And she's just saying, like, why should I be this version of me that doesn't exist just to please them? Her cussing and saying, like, show your workings out, motherfucker, is this act of Abigail-esque revolt mm. against this unfair circumstance. There's a lot wrapped up in what you were just talking about, especially in terms of I understand why people of the gay community would want to be the best versions of themselves because of how a lot of villains in stories 
are mm. characterized with behaviors that would be associated with gay people without them being overtly gay. Their traits are automatically villainized without anyone ever even saying the word gay. Uh, I'm sorry, the gay police are coming for me right now. I don't know if you hear the siren in the background there. <laughs> but by the same token, I get that you know gay people are tired of the idea of in order to be accepted as gay, that they have to be a version of themselves that is beyond reproach. It's very much like the respectability politics. Yeah. That was a good portion of how black people were supposed to integrate in white society. That mm. you're, you're able to be black as long as you behave mostly white, except when we really like some aspect of black culture and we want to incorporate that into white culture because it's cool man but also we want like, to oppress you at the same time white people are just general grievous taking the lightsabers of the black community and saying this will be <laughs> a fine addition to my collection <laughs> honestly I, I i get where they're coming from in that regards in terms of like we should be able to have our Jerry Hogarth's as much as the I'm I'm making reference to a character from Jessica Jones who is played by Carrie Ann Moss and she is very definitely gay but she's kind of also like a, a, a not a great human like oh, she's, she's not awful. evil <laughs> but she's very selfish and she makes a lot of bad decisions that result in greater complexity down the way but I I wouldn't mm. necessarily wish harm to her but at the same time, we should have the right for these people to behave badly without associating it with their differences. It should never be the case that like there is so such limited visibility that the only behaviors we see are indicative of the default behavior of an entire subset of the population. There should be so much visibility that we get to see this broad range of behaviors for what it is, mm -hmm. a broad range of behaviors. These are people, they behave like people. Mm -hmm. We were talking about this earlier in the session that we like to see characters whose best selves can sometimes just be an inversion of their worst selves, mm -hmm. drawing from a lot of the same color palettes and we want to see that nuance. We want to see the range because that's what it's all about. There's a reason why the symbol of pride is a rainbow mm. because people like to look at rainbows. There's such a spectrum of possibility. And when you say, I'm mad at seeing a rainbow, you look like a fucking moron. Well, because they always associate the rainbow specifically with gayness. And that's where we had that thing that was shown around on Discord earlier, where it'd be like, oh, why are you including your rainbow in the 50th anniversary of this album from, what was it, Pink Floyd? And be like, motherfucker, rainbow was a part of the goddamn album cover. What the fuck are you on? It has absolutely nothing to do with pride. But even if it did, just knee-jerk responses of people. That's what it is. It's it's input output. They mm -hmm. can't help but see it. But like when you strip it down, it's just like you are being ridiculous. <laughs> when I see a Punisher skull on the hood of a car, I get upset. And mm -hmm. 
you know why that feels like a reasonable thing because someone's put a skull on their thing even if you take the context of it out it's still a reasonable thing that should be a red flag if mm -hmm. someone puts a rainbow on a car i'm not thinking like oh i'm in trouble here it's like oh cool it's mm -hmm. a rainbow mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's about as positive an ending as we could hope for i know i need to stop apologizing for stuff coming out quote unquote late and just put it out when it's out but at least Toby and I are recording more often now, and the next recording for Chapter 34 is shorter, so fingers crossed on being able to keep up momentum. To close us out, I got one of the angriest voices of the 90s to sing not about anger specifically, but about the experience of living, loving, crying, losing, and sometimes even screaming, as long as you manage to be better afterwards. Until next time... This is Alanis Morissette with You Learn.